Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. My name is Marshall Poe, and I'm the editor-in-chief of the network. And every so often, I like to step back in front of the microphone. I have a different role on the network now and interview someone who has written a very interesting book that has crossed my desk. And today, I'm very pleased to say that we have Yuri Sioskin on on the show, and we will be talking about his new book, The House of Government. Yuri, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Uh, I was born in Moscow in 1956 um, and uh, went to Moscow State University and then arrived in this country in 1983 and have lived here ever since. Um, I... uh, Got my PhD from the University of Texas in Austin. Uh, I taught at Wake Forest in North Carolina for three years. And I have been at Berkeley for 25 years now. So could you tell us why you wrote The House of Government? I, some years ago, I wrote an article called The Soviet Union as a Communal Apartment, in which communal apartment was a metaphor. And so I decided that it would be interesting to write a book about an actual communal apartment, such as the one in which I grew up, such as the ones in which my grandparents lived and most everyone I knew growing up in the Soviet Union. But sort of, a, It was supposed to be a history of the Soviet Union through the history of one communal apartment. And I had actually one particular apartment in mind. But then I realized that I probably would not be able to find enough people who knew, who who lived in that apartment over the years, um, or enough family archives. And so I kept moving from one apartment to another, and then from one building to another, until I ended up in the largest building of them all, a building I knew everyone knew something about, and the building most important uh, that I knew had a very thick and long paper trail, uh, a building populated by people who had a great deal written about them and who wrote a great deal themselves. Uh, and so rather than having a sort of living space where strangers lived, I ended up writing a book about a house where fellow revolutionaries, comrades in arms, lived as neighbors under the same roof. So the design changed, the scale changed, uh, and so I ended up doing something very different from what I originally proposed to do. But that's the story. That often happens when you start to write a book. At least it does every time I do. So I should say for people who don't know that this particular house of government is a very famous place in Moscow. I I was told about it when I first went to the Soviet Union and to Moscow in the 
1980s, late 1980s, uh, people will point it out to you. It is an enormous edifice. And I can mm-hmm. even remember wandering around in there in the bad old days when you weren't supposed to go in there for some reason. I just knew about it. And my Soviet friends would say, this place is different. So I wandered around. Because yeah. you hear these stories of people living in these communal apartments and that they didn't have kitchens in the original apartments. I don't even know if that's true. We'll come to that in a second. But it's a very famous place among right. people who live in Moscow. Right. Yeah. Why did the Bolsheviks build it? Well, one reason was was uh, practical. They had been nomadic for most of their lives, and they, in 1920s, uh, were living in several downtown Moscow hotels that had been converted into dorms known as houses of, of Soviets. And they realized, rather decided at some point, that the time had come for them to have a permanent place to live. That happened in the mid-1920s. And they started wondering about it, talking about it, debating different plans, and ended up building what they would call the House of the Council of People's Commissars and the Central Executive Committee, otherwise known as the House of Government. So it was, on the one hand, just a practical proposition. They wanted a place to live, and now they had families, thought of themselves as families, as people ready to settle down, uh, controversially so. But still, that's the way most of them felt. Was there a debate mm-hmm. about building it? Did some of them say, no, we obviously shouldn't do this and we should distribute no, ourselves among the no, workers or something no, like that? There was no one that I know of who would say, no, we should not have uh, <laughs> a special building. But there were lots of debates about what that building should look like. Mm-hmm. And that, in addition to the practical purpose, is the other one, the, um, the symbolic and ideological one. And that is, you know, what does it represent, whether it should serve as the prototype for future communist domesticity, and if so, what should it look like, what sh- should it contain, uh, and so on. Could you tell us about those debates? Were there sort of various sides or factions you could describe to us? Yeah, well, some people preferred uh, communal buildings, uh, buildings without family apartments, buildings in which individuals would be interchangeable, or buildings rather consisting of individual cells or dwellings, combined and possibly recombined in a variety of ways, buildings in which the residential part would be separate uh, from the most important part, the collective part. And many of the functions would take place in that collective part. So that's that's the idea behind a variety of communal buildings that were designed and in some cases built in the Soviet Union in the 1920s. And then there were the more conservative ones. Those debates, of course, reflected wider debates within the party in the 1920s between the left and the right. And so there were those who favored more traditional uh, family apartments. And so the House of Government ended up being a compromise. It was officially known as a building of the transitional type. And that meant that it combined family apartments 
505 of them originally, with a vast network of public spaces, including a theater, movie theater, cafeteria, grocery store, walk-in clinic, beauty salon, tennis court, gym, laundry, library, um, and several dozen rooms for various purposes from chess playing and painting to billiards and indeed symphony orchestra rehearsals. So it was, as I said, built as a compromise. And it was in some ways such a successful compromise that it, it was ultimately very unsuccessful. Nobody thought of it as beautiful because it was transitional also stylistically, sort of halfway between constructivism, sort of avant-garde constructivism and neoclassicism or, if you will, socialist realism. And no one or very few people, I should say, very few grown-ups in the building ever used any of those collective spaces. It's very interesting because, again, the lore of it is fascinating to me because when I first arrived in Moscow, my really quite well-informed Soviet friends explained to me that when it was originally built, there were no kitchens in any of the apartments. No, that's not <laughs> yes, right. But it is true, though. It is true that there were some conversations about it, yeah. whether they would need kitchens. And there was no doubt that there would be a public cafeteria in that in that building. And indeed, they built one. Uh, and indeed, no one really ever used it. It was used... <laughs> Or rather, no one from among the residents ever used it. It was used by, as a sort of, as a place to eat for various delegates to various party uh, congresses and conferences. But some of the other spaces were used mostly by, by the children, and in some cases by the adults as well. I don't mean to ask only kind of banal, quotidian questions, but how is it decided who would live where? That's actually a very important question. And of course, much of my book is about these banal quotidian questions. There was a special uh, committee uh, charged with the task. And the apartments within the house were ranked. Some were much bigger than others. Some had better views than others. Some were located in more prestigious entryways than others. And so your apartment was supposed to correspond to your status within the party or the state hierarchy. It was not very easy to accomplish. Um, and then, of course, over the years, people would um, be promoted and dismissed, and so they would move up or out accordingly. I mean, I can see why it would be difficult, because these are people that made a fetish out of a kind of egalitarianism or at least the appearance of egalitarianism right. you know they wanted to appear like they were all equals but you know it's a little bit you know eventually you have to pull the trigger eventually you have to decide who's going to live where <laughs> so it right. has to be done and, exactly. and i imagine they and were very uncomfortable their, with it and in their applications petitions and complaints they did not talk much about equality and egalitarianism. They wanted bigger apartments, better apartments, more space. Um, 
even though, as you say, the ethos, this egalitarian ethos was very much alive, and but it manifested itself in other ways. Did anyone get offered an apartment there and then say they wanted to live elsewhere? Was that possible? It was possible. It wasn't very common because it was a substantial improvement for virtually everyone who moved in there uh, over whatever, you know, whatever rooms they had lived in before. Uh, it could happen that some people just prefer to stay in the Kremlin, like some of the top officials who had spent the 1920s living in the Kremlin might prefer to just stay there out of inertia or because they liked it there or because it meant being close to Comrade Stalin, uh, who, of course, remained there throughout uh, the period. But um, uh, it could happen, but it didn't happen very often. Did they, um, and I'm reminded of the way we used to be taught about the way Russian peasant villages redistributed land. Did you get a bigger apartment when you had a kid? Well, you would try to get one. You would try to get one. You would write a petition. But just having a kid clearly was not good enough. Ideally, you would get a promotion. And then you could try, and occasionally some people would succeed. One of the themes of your book is that different cohorts of people grew into maturation in this building. So there was the initial cohort of revolutionaries who get put in there, and then there's there's children, and they grow up in this environment. What was it like for, I can imagine what it was like for the revolutionaries, probably the greatest thing ever, but what, what was it like for the children to live there? Well, I'm talking about two generations, really, about the original residents, the Bolsheviks, the the original revolutionaries, the officials fit for their service with that building. And then their families, and there were very few, if any, nuclear families among them. They mostly lived in extended families or lived in apartments where other people lived along with the officials and their wives and children. And then, but then the important characters, the sort of the real protagonists, as I say, are the original revolutionaries and their children. And so the grown-ups were rarely there, the men in particular. They would really only sleep in that building and then spend time there uh, on their days off. Most of the women, or many of the women, also spent much of their time at work. And so the house really belonged to the children. What's also important is that the grown-ups did not really behave like traditional neighbors in those Russian villages you mentioned or uh, in other apartment buildings. Uh, they did not uh, go over to each other's places. They didn't talk much to each other inside the house of government. They didn't tend to gossip together, you know, do things that neighbors to do, or borrow uh, salt or pepper or irons. Children, on the other hand, did live there as neighbors, friends, and lovers. Children were the ones who used those public spaces to dance, to play music, uh, play games, to hide, 
uh, and so on. And, and most important were the courtyards. The uh, building, and it's a huge building, was organized around three courtyards. And those courtyards really belong to the children. And so most of the memoirs, most of the memories, indeed, reminiscences by those who grew up there are really about the courtyards, about the games they played and friendships they developed. And again, this may sound like a completely absurd question, but I remember again from my experience living in the Soviet Union when it was still the Soviet Union that the buildings that uh, one of the buildings I lived in had, had a kind of obligatory organization that was run by people in the building and some of them were in the party and occasionally they had the adults had to get together. <laughs> like on voting day. So they didn't no, have any of this. Later, that's a, a later thing. Later okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, much later development. There, there was nothing like that in the House of Government in the 1930s. That is a kind of post-war uh, thing. But there were lots of people working there. Mm-hmm. Yes, I was going to ask about this. So these so are people again. In addition Go ahead. To, the, to about, I think, on average, about 2,600 people who lived there in the mid-1930s. About 700 of them um, state and party officials assigned to particular buildings, um, the rest being their dependents. Uh, so in addition to those, there were from 600 to 800 at some point gardeners and guardians and guards and waiters and and uh, plumbers and electricians and floor polishers and laundresses and other uh, house employees, including over 50 permanent administrators. And um, they indeed had meetings. They had their primary party organizations there and trade union sales uh, and political education, lectures and seminars, and so on and so forth. Because, in other words, the party in the Soviet Union in general monitored people at work, really, not at home. And so this was true of the House of Government as well. It was at work that you would you know, join the party or the Young Communist League, the Komsomol, or in school, of course not at home. And so the House of Government was a place of employment for hundreds of people. And so they would be the ones being supervised, uh, being tested, um, and disciplined, organized, and so on. How were relations between the residents, who were members of the nomenclatura, and the people who worked in the house. And again, I'm thinking of how uncomfortable the nomenclatura might have been having right. what are essentially servants. There were, there were no social relations between those two groups, and they really hardly interacted outside of purely professional context. In other words, people, mostly the, the wives, would have someone come to uh, polish the floors, or wash the windows, or fix um, yeah, the electricity, and so on. So I, at least, I am not aware of anything beyond those contexts. But of course, 
those people living in the basement, and you can kind of picture this, again, if you think of a large hotel, wasn't that different. There are, there are hundreds of people involved in the maintenance of the building, people serving the residents, mostly located in the basement. There is this rich, crowded life in those basement spaces, right? Including the, including various services. Um, and then some ground floor apartments, some of them communal apartments where guards and others lived. Uh, and then you have the um, guests or residents, in this case, official registered residents living above them. But of course, those living in the basement were not the only ones working inside the House of Government. Every family had at least one maid. So there were employees who, unlike those official house employees, were actually living in the officials' apartments in many cases as quasi-family members, as live-in servants. So there were maids, there were maids known as house employees or home employees, uh, nannies, sometimes one and the same person, sometimes not, and in some cases governesses, mostly German, German uh, governesses. So I want to get to this very arresting sentence in the book, and I want to be able to cited. I'm not sure if I can. I might have to paraphrase. But you say that the House of Government was where uh, revolutionaries came to live and the revolution came to die. This is a great phrase. I love right. it. But I need you to explain to us what it means. Well, the first part is self-explanatory, right? So that's where they lived. That indeed, the revolution, that's where the revolution went to die. Because all revolutions, I believe, die at home. Uh, revolutions, I believe, repeat themselves. They start uh, out as tragedies, and they end as family tragedies. They begin as rebellion against the monotony of human life, against this, the eternal return against the same damn thing. And they end amidst women and children. And I think if they try to survive by executing their high priest for treason, they end a little later among broken families and old, old love letters. That certainly is what happened in the House on the Embankment. Uh, Every attempt to remake human life in the direction of greater egalitarianism has to deal with the family. Every one of those attempts, I believe, is defeated ultimately by the family. Every sect that attempts to reshape the world along those lines has to confront the most conservative human institution an institution that is a really an inexhaustible source of inequality, hierarchy, 
in corruption. And the Bolsheviks knew it, but they weren't very good at figuring out what to do about this. Um, and uh, so I believe that this statement is true of all so-called great, great revolutions, or in other words, of all attempts to abolish injustice, corruption, hierarchy, and inequality. But it is particularly true, I think, of the Bolsheviks, because unlike some others, they really had no guidance from their founders, from their scripture, about how to be virtuous at home how to raise children, how to indeed to connect the most important things in human life, such as birth, marriage, and death, to their eschatological script. Of course, if you read Marx, at least I, perhaps it's Engels, I don't know, because he wrote about the family, that eventually okay. the family, it is, of course, a bourgeois product of a bourgeois civilization, and when you reach a fully developed communism, it will just fall apart. Now, as you point out in the book, these are yeah, wildly utopian claims based on no evidence whatsoever. Right. So right. The, the, some members of the uh, of the Bolshevik circle, we might say, I was thinking of Lenin's wife in particular, were very interested in these issues. So they never had any plan at all. I mean, I had a friend who had to translate Krupskaya. <laughs> I can't imagine a worse job. But the, so there was just no direction here at all about what to do with the inequality. It is essentially natural, uh, naturally, you have to be careful with that word, but I'll say it, naturally generated by what is uh, kin selection as the... Um, Right. As the evolutionary psychologists call it. Right, right, exactly. And actually, uh, Krupska's various autobiographies are quite interesting, as are, I think, many of the autobiographies produced in the House of Government. Um, not all of them, obviously, are well written, but they, you know, they are interesting in a variety of ways. Otherwise, I would have uh, never finished my project, as I had to read so so many of them. Uh, the again, this is a common predicament. This is true of so many millenarian sects, because that's how I view view Bolshevism. But the successful ones, and there aren't very many of those, the successful ones eventually sneak into the hole move into the family, attach the family to their cosmology and their sense of history. And so, you know, Jesus of Nazareth uh, said, if you come to me and hate not your father, mother, sister, brother, wife, and children, you cannot be my disciple. Or when his parents came to see him, uh, he said, you know, they are not my family. This, pointing to his disciples, is my family. That, of course, is common to all such such communities. But the, you know, but Christians did figure out a way uh, to, you know, to toward compromise, and did turn 
marriage into a sacrament, uh, policed, maintained, uh, and upheld by the church. The Bolsheviks didn't 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 do it. Didn't do it. I was going to mention actually Christianity because I I was uh, I was raised a Lutheran myself, and I, and you know these are sort of parts of the Bible that are often <laughs> completely forgotten. Right. <laughs> that he he basically doesn't like the family at all, and he thinks of basically we're you know we're all brothers or we're children of right. God, and the family really has no place in any of it. Neither, for that matter, does reproduction because. Precise. It's all over. <laughs> it's Precise. all. It's going to end and, in a second. Right. So don't right. sow the fields. You know, don't get married. Don't have children because the end is upon right. us. Yeah. So I, I was going to mention that specifically. Exactly. Yeah. No. There, there is definitely a. But eventually, I mean, we have to say that the Bolsheviks did kind of make an accommodation with the family, and as you say, in Soviet life, at least as I encountered it in the 1980s, you're right. The private sphere was really quite separate. People were having families, and they, they, they did the family. They did make thing. it. I mean, in some ways, you could. They reconciled themselves, obviously, to the family as an institution. They legitimized it and eventually celebrated it. But they never managed to penetrate it successfully, unlike your Lutheran. They tried to, and as you mentioned, particularly in the late 1940s, 1950s, they made some inroads. But it was only late in the Soviet period that they started wondering about how to do this, how to actually connect the various rights of domestic rites of passage to the state's official ideology. But by the time they got around to ask themselves those questions, it was really too late. Mm-hmm. So let me, let me ask you a question, which you, uh, I, I don't know, which I mean, you may be, you may just say, Marshall, I have no idea, but have, and, and again, I, I know that some of my friends in Soviet studies and Soviet history don't like this comparison, but have the North Koreans cracked that nut? <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Hey, what? Have the North Koreans cracked that nut? In other words, have they found a way to integrate the family into Juche philosophy, as they call it, which I guess is, you know, you see what I'm saying? It's right. I don't know enough about North yeah, Korea. Yeah, I don't either. But, yeah. but that is certainly my impression. It is mine too. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you because I don't know any North Koreans. I know some Koreans, but I've got to say that that place looks reasonably That's stable. That's the way it, it seems. Uh, although, again, the what I think makes Korean or indeed Chinese or Cambodian millenarianism different from the the Soviet kind, the Russian kind, is that they were nationalist movements, while also, of course, being um, communist apocalypse millenarian movements. And I think that is the reason they have been able to survive uh, while rejecting one original precept after another. I I was going to say, I had the opportunity in the summers to teach uh, a particularly interesting kind of great books class to students from the People's Republic of China. They actually come over from China to do this class. And uh, one of the things that is very clear from talking to them is that Essentially, even within Chinese communism, if we can call that, family comes first. Because the degree of 
authority which they give their parents is truly right. astounding. Their parents right. decide their lives and they have no problem with it whatsoever. Like the right. way they think and, of their parents is like nothing even, you know, Americans don't think of their parents this way. Right. And they practice right. a kind of ancestor worship. I mean, I know Koreans do. I won't speak for the right. Chinese, but this is a striking difference, I think. Right. And this is not only is it true compared to traditional Russian life, rural or urban. It is particularly true when you compare that to Chinese communism, to Soviet uh, and so even though it is essentially a Marxist problem, just a problem that some communists resolved more successfully than others, it's a problem for Marxists because of the assumption that a revolution in property relations is really the only truly necessary precondition for a revolution in human hearts. And so the Bolsheviks assume that the dictatorship of the proletariat, you know, given some effort, would more or less automatically be followed by uh, the withering away of the state and the family and whatever else got in the way of communism. So there were no, they had really no, and that's true of my characters in the House of Government, they had no guidelines about what to do inside the family. And I think it's partly as a result of that, that they really, they did things that proved in the end fatal. They raised their children as, if not anti-communists, but certainly non And they did it because they didn't know any better. And there is that sense I can actually remember hearing, uh, of all people, a priest, a Catholic priest, who had read very deeply in Marx and Lenin, try to explain once what the Bolsheviks thought was going to happen once private property was eliminated. And he just described it as a kind of rapture, that this magical thing was going to happen. Right. And he said, right. and he said, much to your, I would say, much supporting your position, he said, it's a little bit like the way Christians, when you ask them to describe what will happen when Christ returns. Right. We don't know, but it's going to be wonderful and magical. And I think it's true. I think it's true. Moreover, the, the beauty of communism is a prophecy. Is that the first part of the prophecy actually came true, unlike what happened in Christianity. In other words, Jesus said that in this generation, brother would rise against brother and put him to death, and the father would betray his child, and kingdom would rise against kingdom, and so on and so forth. And that didn't happen. My friends, the Bolsheviks, had a similar prophecy, and it came true. Or rather, it began to come true in their lifetimes. And, you know, rapture is one way to describe how they felt when Babylon began to fall apart all around them. It's just that, of course, then they had, they were, they had to wait for the, for the second part of the prophecy to come true, and it never did, and they agonized uh, and worried and spent sleepless nights thinking about it and then spent many hours talking to their interrogators 
are wondering about this or make excuses. Again, I'm reminded of this. Well, there's a moment, and I'm thinking of Sabbatai Svi, who uh, said, in the, I think it was 16th century Jewish mystic, and he said, the end time was upon us. And he said, don't sow your crops. There's no need to, because it's all over. Right. And I can remember, and I don't even remember whether this is true, because as you know, I don't really study the period. But right after the revolution, Lenin and his cohort were sitting around asking about what they should do or thinking about what they should do. And they said, well, we should wait for the Germans to rise up. <laughs> yeah. Then we don't need to do anything, because the Germans will rise up. And then, well... This magical thing will happen. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. They sat there and did nothing for a while and right. waited. Although, again, this is true. I think the, you know, people, some people argue that, well, this case is quite different from what we call religions because they were to accomplish so much themselves. And I really don't think it's true because I think all end of times. Uh, prophets and sectarians believe in some combination of predestination and free will. No one does nothing in the face of the approaching end. Jesus had to do or say something in order for time to be fulfilled, and his disciples had to at the very least uh, repent and become humble like children. Uh, And so, you know, in the history of Christianity, and certainly Islam, uh, and in the Chinese tradition, uh, there are numerous millenarian uprisings. The believers actually doing a lot to help the prophecy come true. But let me let me get. To, uh to a question I want to ask you before we're done, because this really is, uh, it kind of gets to the, uh, Nicholas Raznovsky of Blessed Memory taught me this. And he said, you know, we really need to take great care to uh, treat historical items historically. And so when we say, he might say, I don't know if he ever said this to you, he didn't to me, but if we describe the Bolsheviks in religious terms and say they were like, let's say, millenary Christians, how do we square that with the fact that they were avowed atheists? Is there a way to talk about this that doesn't right. involve importing that language, a language well, that's a higher level is, of generality? I don't know. This is an open I, question. I don't have an answer. Yeah, I think we make our lives needlessly complicated when we use the word when we use the word religion in the first place. Partly because most of us do not know what we mean by it, and those who do frequently disagree and use definitions that are not at all compatible with each other. Uh, what is important to me in this case uh, is a certain plot, a certain script, a certain expectation. And so it doesn't matter to me if you call some of them religious and some not. Atheism was basically one way for the Bolsheviks to say that they considered all the previous prophecies to be false. This, of course, is true of all millenarian sects. They happened to Call in other, um, and so this is not that different. It is true, of course, that they thought of themselves as materialists and pointed out that they were this worldly as, as revolutionaries. But so was, in my view, Jesus of Nazareth. 
who he seemed to believe that eternal life was going to happen to flesh and blood human beings right now uh, in this in this world. But in any case, there are obviously great differences between early Christianity and early Bolshevism, just as there are great differences between early Christianity and early Islam, very important differences. And so the, there are ways in which communism is meaningfully different from Christianity and Islam. But when it comes to this particular expectation that the old world of injustice, inequality, and oppression was going to end in our lifetimes, they are similar. I'm not obviously arguing that they are identical. I'm pointing to certain telling similarities and try to build on that and try to explain certain things about the Bolshevik experience in light of that comparison. I, I guess one thing that occurs to me, a question that occurs to me personally, and maybe I'm something just a, a, a cynic, is how someone could come to believe in a kind of millionarianism such as you've described or the early Christians described, because that mentality is so incredibly foreign to me. But you know what? But that is, that is, I think, a question that all historians answer one way or another. I am sure that the world you know better than most, the world of Muscovy, is very different from your own. And yet there you are, coming to terms with it, attempting to understand it, and being able to, to interpret it. And I think the same is true of almost anything we choose, because, you know, history by definition is a foreign country, right? We move into a different world, and so we try to understand it even when it is very different from our own, except that perhaps the world I describe is closer to us than the one that you study, uh, because, you know, we tend to live in our... Uh, enclosed, circumscribed social worlds. But, you know, I ride my bike around Berkeley or Oakland, and I rarely stop to look, and I have never really bothered to enter one of many Pentecostal churches or Jehovah's Witnesses uh, assemblies that I pass by. You know, I see the invitations, welcome signs, schedules, but, you know, people who go there, most of them believe some of the things that my characters believed, you know, and so those people live next to us, they are quite numerous, and they their beliefs are not weird. And so that's why I'm, you know, that I just see Bolsheviks in the same way. I mean, there was, they were actually, you know, in uh, late 19th century urban Russia, they were one sect among many. You know, there are times, and you know, the 1960s in this country was particularly late 60s in this country was one of those times when people tend to expect the end and, and believe that the brother would rise against brother and so on. Well, I know we've taken up a lot of your time, and I know you have to go. I want to ask our traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now? Can you say a few words about that? I'm working on the original version of this book. I have written 
the English translation, and so now I am writing the original Russian version. It will take a while. I imagine it will, yes. Well, you know, you're going back to That's good. That's very good. Well, anyway, let me tell everybody who's been uh, listening to this podcast that we've been talking to Yuri Sioskin about his book, The House of Government, and I encourage you to go out and buy that book. There's a lot of wisdom in it. It's certainly very interesting. We haven't touched on even a tiny fraction of the copious material that is in this book, let me tell you that. So, Yuri, thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And to everyone who listens to the podcast, thank you. And I hope to talk to you soon.